Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For all the impressive things that artificial intelligence can do, it often falls short of the human standard. Not so in aerial dogfights, it turns out. We take a look at the computers in cockpits and why there's still clearly a place for pilots alongside them. And mixed martial arts has its roots in plenty of countries, but it got glossy and formalized in America. The made-for-television sport is taking hold in Britain and it's gaining some political overtones on both sides of the Atlantic. But first... The beginning of uh, the end is within reach, um, and that our defense forces have now effectively encircled Makali. Uh, and now... Today, Ethiopia's civil war could escalate further after a key deadline passes. On Sunday, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed told the rulers of the northern region of Tigray, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, to surrender their arms within 72 hours. This morning, Abiy warned the international community against what he called unwelcome and unlawful acts of interference. The leader of Tigray has said his people are ready to die defending their homeland, even as the region's capital, Mekele, is surrounded by federal forces. Since the fighting broke out three weeks ago, tens of thousands have fled to neighboring Sudan, leaving everything behind. It was, it was so difficult because uh, we, ha- we are hungry, we, are, uh, uh, we don't have any water, any food, uh, we don't have any transportation. With neither side backing down, fears abound of a full-scale humanitarian crisis. Not only is the strife fueling ethnic tensions within Ethiopia, it's also spilling into neighboring countries. Well, the situation is looking pretty grave. We already have 40,000 people uprooted, probably many thousand, including civilians, killed. Tom Gardner is our Addis Ababa correspondent. And right now, Mekele, the capital of Tigray, is bracing for an attack by federal troops. So, so bring us up to date how this got started and where things are now. This war is the culmination of long-standing tensions between the TPLF, which runs the region of Tigray in northern Ethiopia, and Ethiopia's federal government. The TPLF was very powerful for three decades in the federal government. It basically ran the show. But big protests in 2017-18 ultimately forced it to make way for Abiy, the prime minister. It still hasn't really come to terms with its dethroning. It also believes it has been unfairly purged and sidelined by Abiy's government. Tensions escalated in recent months when Abiy postponed the national election scheduled for June, citing the COVID-19 pandemic. The TPLF went ahead and held its own regional election in defiance of 
the federal government. It said that the federal government is no longer legitimate. Things reached a boiling point at the beginning of this month when Abiy launched a military campaign against the TPLF after the TPLF attacked uh, federal military camps in the north. And that flashpoint is what we, we spoke about on the show last time. How have things progressed since then? Things have got pretty bad pretty quickly. Uh, we've already had an appalling massacre in the town of Maikadra, which is in western Tigray, with as many as 600 mostly Amhara civilians murdered, it seems, by forces aligned to the TPLF. The Amhara have territorial claims in western and southern Tigray. Amhara militia, for this reason, have been fighting alongside the federal government, and there have been some gruesome reports from Tigrayan refugees in Sudan detailing atrocities by them. We've also seen heavy aerial bombardment of towns in Tigray. Civilians have been killed. Uh, It's pretty hard to know exactly how many or what exactly has been going on in Tigray because there's been a telecommunications blackout since day one. It does seem, however, that the Ethiopian army has made some important gains, captured some territory in the west and southern Tigray and some important towns. Now, on November the 17th, Abiy said the battle was entering its final phase and that his troops were making brisk progress towards Mekele. The city appears to be encircled and the TPLF says it will not surrender. And so what do you think will happen next? The army on the weekend warned residents of Mekele to save themselves and after that there would be no mercy So many are worried that a bloodbath might be imminent. The TPLF, for its part, has said essentially that it will be arming residents of Mekele to defend it. We already have 40,000 or so refugees in Sudan. That number might rise to as many as 200,000 or more. At the same time, even if the TPLF is defeated or loses control of Mekele, their fighters may wage a guerrilla war from the hills. And I'm remembering when we spoke about this a a few weeks ago, you said one of the gravest dangers was that this would spill out into a more regional conflict. As things have heated up in Tigray, does that look any more likely? Yes. So on November the 14th, the TPLF fired rockets over the border at Asmara, the capital of neighboring Eritrea. And that threatens to drag Eritrea into a conflict with Ethiopia barely two years after the country's made peace. That's the reason Abiy was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize last year. Tigray's president claims Asmara Airport was a legitimate target. He says Ethiopian forces were using Asmara Airport, which is probably true. And he also says Tigrayan forces are fending off 16 or so Eritrean divisions on several fronts. The Eritrean government denies any involvement in Ethiopia's conflict, but... Its president, Isaiah Safawaki, has a score to settle with the TPLF. He's drawn very close to Abiy in the last two years, and few doubt he would like to see the Tigrayans routed, just like Abiy. And with the involvement of Amhara in all of this, that raises the specter of the other grave danger we spoke about at the time, which was that this would create much more ethnic conflict within Ethiopia. How, how are things looking on that score? In western Ethiopia two weeks ago, there was another massacre of Amharas in Beni Shangul Gumuz region. In the last few days in southern Ethiopia, 94,000 people displaced in a kind of localized conflict down there, which also seems to have killed scores. So, yes, there is an indication that the dynamics between Amhara and Tigray will escalate in a pretty dangerous direction, but also that the security vacuum opened up into other parts of the country by the movement of troops and the redirection of Ethiopia's military resources northwards opens up the space for further conflict in other parts of the country as well. 
And so as all that goes on and, and the temperature goes up and all of this fragments, I mean, the prospects for resolving this look ever more distant. Yeah, so I think at the moment with Abby convinced that he is a few days away from capturing Michele and, you know, he believes victory is in sight, it's very unlikely that the federal government is about to take its foot off the pedal and sit down and talk with the TPLF. It says it will not do so. The TPLF says it wants to talk. It says it wants international mediation. And there are African Union efforts underway to that effect. But the TPLF's demands are also very high. They want Abby to step down, essentially. It is possible that the federal government is right, that the conventional war may be won in the coming days or weeks. But then we have a much bigger question, which is what then? How do you govern a region which believes the federal government is waging war against it? So then it's likely that the federal government will find itself dealing with an armed insurgency in Tigray at the same time as it's firefighting various other parts of the country, ethnic conflagration and instability, which has basically been ongoing now for two or more years. And we don't look like we're anywhere closer to a peaceful resolution for all of that. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. 
Now, the critics say, look, dogfighting is a very narrow way to test a computer program. It's a very simplistic task, all about maneuvering. DARPA is making its future tests more realistic. It's introducing longer range missiles. It's introducing multiple planes. This is part of a bigger series of tests to see how far AI can go. With the eventual goal that the human pilot is pulled out altogether? There are some theoretical advantages to getting rid of a pilot. Uh, for a start, if you have a plane that's maneuvering very intensively, you have very high G-forces, and those tend to have very nasty effects on squishy human beings. We do things like pass out, which is not ideal in a fighter jet. The other advantage in taking a pilot out of a plane is, of course, you can then throw that plane into very dangerous situations without worrying about human casualties. But what I think air forces are mostly thinking is that actually you're better off having a team of humans and AI, not simply the AI. And why is that? Why not get rid of the humans altogether? So one reason for that is getting rid of a pilot doesn't save you much in the design of a plane. The cockpit, the systems to keep a pilot alive, all of those things are only about 1% to 2% of a plane's weight. But I think the bigger problem is that AI also has some serious shortcomings at the moment. Even the very best AI tends to be very narrow, so it can be fantastically good at playing chess or something like that, but not very good at being applied outside of that narrow situation. It has a problem explaining itself, so how did it come to a particular decision, even if that decision is very good, and that can make it very difficult to understand mistakes. And it can lack a kind of common sense judgment that a human would have no trouble with. It's easy to see why an AI pilot just might not be able to deal with things like complying with international law, distinguishing between civilians and combatants, and very, very important stuff like that. A lot of people are worried about killer robots, but actually the sense is that artificial intelligence remains so limited that you're going to have to have a human making those big calls at the end of the day, and the AI is going to support them rather than take over them. So if it's still important to have humans in the loop or on the loop, then why not just have human pilots run the fighter jets remotely? Indeed, that's what America does to its drone fleet right now. They're not an autonomous Terminator-type system simply picking out targets. They're a human being sitting in Nevada in a trailer controlling this drone remotely. Now, the problem is that that's fine if you have really good communication links. But in a future conflict, the nature of electronic warfare, and we've seen hints of this in recent campaigns in places like Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, electronic warfare is going to mean that you don't have a guarantee you're going to be able to communicate with your plane. And so you have a choice between having it either fly back home or getting shot down by an enemy. Maybe that's okay in many situations, but in some situations it isn't. So for example, France's next generation fighter plane the sixth-generation future combat air system they're developing with Germany, that's going to carry French nuclear missiles. So losing contact with your nuclear missiles in the air, well, you know, that's bad. The answer to all of this is what we call manned-unmanned teaming, in which some tasks are handed to the AI and the human pilot keeps some of them. The question is how much of this can progressively be handed off to a computer in a way that frees up the cognitive load for the pilot. For example, Lockheed Martin, which is a big American company, is developing a missile avoidance system. A computer can tell you exactly which plane in a fleet the missile is heading for and exactly what they need to do to avoid it. So it's that kind of task 
that I think we're going to see the machines increasingly take over. They'll be supporting the pilot rather than superseding the pilot. That challenge of melding human and machine rather than replacing human is, I think, going to be one of the really big technical and psychological challenges that Air Force has faced. In the sense that the tasks the AI would be handing off are ones of great import in this case. Absolutely. And so what's really hard is getting the human to trust the machine. Fast jet pilots are not your most shy, unassuming types. <laughs> they have something of an ego. They may not find it very pleasant to hand off responsibility to machines. And in some respects, it's a generational divide. What I was told repeatedly is that older pilots are more skeptical of this kind of thing, the ones who grew up without all of these fancy computerized systems to help them. The younger pilots, the, the digital natives, perhaps the ones who are much more au fait with technology, they trust the autonomous systems and they may be infinitely more comfortable with a future air force of unmanned planes, of loyal wingmen, of AI systems than their older counterparts. Thanks very much for joining us, Shishonk. Thanks, Jason. The sport of mixed martial arts is already well-established in America, but now it's on the rise on both sides of the Atlantic. Last month, the BBC broadcast an MMA fight for the first time. I think uh, MMA is becoming popular because there's lots of different shows now on TV showing um, UK fighters, and a mixture of male and female fighters, which makes it appealing to everybody. Christian Smith is chief instructor at Resurrection Mixed Martial Arts Academy in Sutton in Ashfield, a small town in the Midlands of England. Also, MMA's got so many different aspects to the sport, stand-up, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, wrestling. This makes it exciting. There's so much to learn, which gives variety for all people. It's brutal, but disciplined, and many see it as a way to keep on the straight and narrow. Like most traditional martial arts, MMA involves patience, learning from your instructors and, and your team, which creates respect and discipline. Uh, also, MMA is a tough sport, so to do well in it, you need discipline, especially in your diet and your lifestyle. But it's a sport that sometimes has political overtones. Mansfield is a large town in Nottinghamshire. It used to be a massive mining stronghold, so it's very much one of these places that we've come to call left-behind town. Elliot Keim is a Britain correspondent at The Economist. He's been looking into the rise of MMA in places like Sutton and Ashfield and nearby Mansfield. But it's also very indicative of how mixed martial arts or MMA has become incredibly popular in working class towns, particularly those in the North and the Midlands, without attracting much mainstream attention. The town now has 14 different MMA clubs. So talk us through exactly what MMA is and, and how popular it is uh, in places like Mansfield. So it's a little bit like boxing with a cage, except for the fact it's much more violent. And you're really looking to sort of subdue your opponents in the most 
vitriolic way possible. It spread over from America, which is home to the ultimate fighting championship, or the UFC, which is the world's largest MMA promotion company. And many of the people who currently run MMA clubs in Britain first got interested back in the 1990s. But back then they had to mail order UFC VHS tapes from the States and it sort of spread by word of mouth. But it's always been controversial over here. In 2007, the British Medical Association advised that the sport be banned on the grounds that it was too violent, but it has continued to grow uh, and now boasts the same participation among 18 to 34-year-old men as both cricket and rugby, which is pretty insane, really. And, and why is that? What is the appeal? Well, like many other kind of former industrial trains across the, the country, the trainers in Mansfield associated it with a return to order. One trainer said he would often drive around the area and spot his students acting up. He said, I'd catch them with an eight-pack of beer getting ready to go home at 12 o'clock in the afternoon and just sit there and get drunk. So I used to drag them off the street. So yeah, it's sort of about discipline and respect and having a sort of output for those things. Brutality in the ring can turn cage fighters into local celebrities. One prominent example is Michael Bisbing, who is from Cliveroe, Lancashire. He worked in factories and slaughterhouses before moving to America, where he became a world champion. But you found in looking into this that there's a, a certain political angle to it as well. Yes. Uh, well, on both sides of the Atlantic, the sport has political overtones. In America, particularly, Dana White, who is president of the UFC, and Colby Colvington, who is a welterweight champion, They've really divided fans over there by being outspoken supporters of Donald Trump. And in America and Germany, it's become particularly common for MMA clubs themselves to sort of be hotbeds for far-right activism. In Britain, these connections have been a little less pronounced, mostly because the far-right isn't as well organised on this side of the pond. Then there's a separate subgroup of MMA, which is much smaller and looked at as a little bit eccentric by quite a lot of other MMA enthusiasts, who sort of embrace cultural nationalism and claim that martial arts were invented not by East Asians, but by ancient Celts in Britain a couple of thousand years ago. The far left have also been attempting to infiltrate the sport through so-called red gyms. Some offer training to activists to fight fascist protests, but uh, it must be said that the vast majority of gyms are politically neutral themselves, and their trainers do make a point of extolling multiculturalism and say they only care about people's ability to fight. No, you don't have time for politics when you're training hard. I'm not a political person anyway, so I'm not one to talk about it at work. People, um, when they come and train with me, they're probably more likely to talk about the troubles going off in their life or things like that. I give them encouragement with these issues. Politics are out of my hands. Elliot, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow 